Hi, this is Tamara Lubicki. You've tuned into a special episode of the Seattle Limudcast, recorded live at Limud Seattle 2020 with Esther Kostanowitz. Enjoy. So I want to ask you two questions, but I want to prepare you for the second question before I ask you. So a question I often ask on the podcast is, what has your Jewish journey been like? Because the slogan of Limud is, we'll take you one step further in your Jewish journey. But since this particular podcast is about how your Judaism intersects with your love of Star Wars, I also want to ask you for your Star Wars journey. So if maybe you could tell us about your Jewish journey and then your Star Wars journey, unless they're like so enmeshed that you can't tell them separately. Well, they both begin in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> and I think that, you know, that in some ways they're very interspersed, but also separate and distinct at the same time. So one of the things, I'll, I'll talk about my Jewish journey first because this is the primary like Limud lens, right? My tag says that I've been to five plus or five question mark Limuds, but that's really five different places. So it's, it's myriad, myriad Limuds is what I've been to. But I grew up in New Jersey um, in a modern Orthodox home, but going to Camp Ramah in the summers. So back then we called ourselves what is now called conservadox without blinking an eye. Um, before, I think we were the only people using the term. And so it was kind of a confusing space, but also a little bit less restrictive of a space and a little bit more open-minded. Open-minded to different interpretations and perspectives, that is. I have a day school background. I always kind of looked at TV and film as something that was kind of outside of me and my Jewish experience. I was desperately looking for Jewish characters and scenarios on screen and finding almost nothing. And if you've looked at your program, you'll know that I'm speaking about TV Gone Jewy tomorrow. So um, I'll be talking more about that in detail um, if that's anything anybody wants to come to. It's usually a pretty fun time. But my point is that in today's world, we're actually seeing a lot of Jewish identity come onto screen, but it, it wasn't the case when I was younger. And because I had these kind of two sets of Judaic perspectives, not quite doing battle, but certainly not always in concert with each other. Like I had the traditional yeshiva day school education. Um, so I had lots of Gemara in my head all the time. And I was also in the school play. And I was also like super engaged by popular culture. And I loved Star Wars and I loved Indiana Jones and I loved uh, Back to the Future and all of those kinds of things. But that stuff was really kind of on the side of my Jewish journey. And I think that over the years, I've really come to appreciate the background that I have as a real gift to be able to have the deep background in Judaic studies. And I also appreciate how I'm able to look at pop culture through a Judaic lens. And it's something that I really feel lucky to have that set of perspectives, and it's always growing, especially now that I'm in, in locations and environments where that kind of exploration and growing is encouraged, like at Limud. Awesome. All right, now tell me about your Star Wars journey. Right. 
So I saw Star Wars when I was very young and loved it. I have two younger brothers who also loved it. And we ended up taping it off of HBO, if anybody understands this ancient language of taping it when it was on HBO. Um, we, we watched it on VHS over and over and over again. And we memorized it. And my younger brother had like all of the Star Wars action figures. So I got to know the ones, the characters who are not named on screen, but are named on the packaging for their action figures. Um, so for instance, you've got a guy who's got three eyes. Does anybody know his name? He's from Return of the Jedi, no? He's got like two eyes here and one eye here, no? His name is Reese, Reese, R-E-E-Y-E-E-S. If you mix up the letter, you'll find three eyes. So anyway, the point is that like, I know all this weird stuff that I'm not supposed to know about Star Wars. And back then, you know, it was only, it was Star Wars, it was Empire Strikes Back, it was Return of the Jedi. We didn't have any of this like growth franchise thing that's happening today, seemingly exponentially. So it was kind of easy to keep track of it. You know, I'm sure that in this room there are people who have a deeper knowledge of Star Wars than I do because it is a very deep study. There is a canon, much like in Jewish life. There are things that are outside of canon, but still are accepted as part of the general galaxy or universe of Star Wars stories. In addition to the, the three original Star Wars movies, you've got the prequels, which some people consider to be outside of you know, certain storytelling techniques. And then there's the three more recent movies, which have their issues, and everybody's super invested in every single part of it. So everybody has an opinion of what succeeded and what failed. And to bridge this a little bit is that I feel like it's a little bit like living in the active kind of Torah academy where people are like, that's not what this means. This is what it means. Or this person has no right speaking here. This person needs to speak over there. And I feel like there's a lot, there's a lot of the arguments surrounding the Star Wars narrative stories and characters that I feel like reflects back into some of the things I learned when I was getting my deep Jewish education. I will say also that I have like a particular love for Princess Leia, our general, may she rest in peace, um, both on screen and off, and Carrie Fisher, who portrayed her. I have a very weirdly deep like kind of connection to Carrie Fisher, even though I never met her. So if I speak about Princess Leia and get a little teary, that's what that is. And I think that she was a, a marvelous role model for little brown-haired girls everywhere who were taught that you could be a princess and a brunette, who were taught that you could rescue your own darn self when you uh, got into trouble, and that you didn't bow to authority to totalitarian authority. And I thought that that was really like marvelous and special. So she's a special touchstone for me in the Star Wars universe. That's awesome. So I've been listening to your podcast, The Bagel Report. And I learned that you have a Star Wars theme menorah. I so do. could you tell us the story of that? Um, yes. So a friend of mine is a very creative artist, uh, and she runs a company called Hagadot.com that I don't know if anybody in here has used. It's, it's a website where you can make your own Hagadot, like pulling pieces of text and images, et cetera. It's super fun and allows you to create a utterly personalized Haggadah every year if you want. She's a very close friend of mine, and she uh, used to be in L.A., and so she had a menorah making and decorating event at her studio, at her art studio, and she got like the little, um, you know, the gold menorahs that are like kind of like the standard basic level, and um, she 
gave us like sticker paper and asked us to like either upload images or what we wanted it to say and she would design it for us and print it out so that we could paste it onto the menorah, onto the Hanukkiah. So I did one that was, I'm not exactly going to remember the exact phrase that's on it, but it's a picture of Darth Vader because I was the only art that we could find that was public domain at that point, I think. And uh, we put on there something like, in a battle between light and darkness, light will always win or, or triumph or something like that because it's menorah, it's light, it's all, it's, not, it's all about light. So I thought that those images were like a particularly resonant metaphor for the Hanukkah. Right. So in preparing for this interview, I tried to think a lot about Judaism, Star Wars, how do they interact? And that was actually something that came up for me, is there's this idea within Judaism that in every generation arises someone who's out to get us, basically. And we see this in quite a few of our holidays. So Hanukkah is one with Antiochus. And another holiday that came to mind, particularly because of Princess Leia, was Purim the story of Esther. So I was wondering, have you, Esther, yeah. <laughs> have you thought about the parallels between Esther's heroism, her being part of the oppressed minority, hiding her Judaism versus coming out with it? Have you thought about the parallels there? Um, not specifically, quite honestly. Um, I think that for me, it's really the discussion of Star Wars and Judaism is really more about I, things like chosenness, about hope, about destiny. And so I guess the destiny component could connect to Miguel Ad Esther when it's talking about maybe it's for this time that I became the queen um, and that I need to now act. And, you know, Mordecai says to Esther, you know, if you're quiet now, then, you know, then then, then salvation will come from somewhere else. Like, so there's hope there too. It, it is about being in the right place at the right time, but it's also about the faith that if that person fails, there will be somebody else. And, you know, at one point in, in Empire Strikes Back, when um, I understand you saw the movies again recently, so you're, you're fresh on this, and I'm assuming everybody else here has the knowledge about this, but when Luke in Empire Strikes Back, when Luke leaves Dagobah and Yoda to go save his friends, the ghost of Ben Kenobi, I'm not spoiling anything, anybody knows Ben Kenobi died, okay, uh, since it was 1977, and hopefully that's the, you know, the spoiler doesn't last that long. Also, Vader is Luke's father. So there, I just spoiled that for anybody who didn't know that. But anyway, as, as Luke leaves, Yoda and Ben have this nice little chat and Kenobi says he was our only hope. And then Yoda says, no, there is, there is another. And then we find out eventually that in the next movie that it's Princess Leia, that she's the next hope. And I understand that for a while, there was a lot of conversation about making Leia kind of like the, the center of the final trilogy. Um, it's turned out that they ended up kind of like saving that for the final film and Carrie Fisher actually died before that was completed. So while they always intended to give her this big arc at the end, they didn't get to do it. And so if, if you guys saw The Rise of Skywalker, they kind of retconned like that in. They, did what they could with the footage that they had, but it probably wasn't as effective, it definitely wasn't as effective as if they had given her her own space to, to be while she was still alive. Right, so does that answer the question? Yeah, There is totally. another, so like that's the hope from coming from another place. Right, that's, that's, for sure. That was my connection. Right, for How sure. How is that? 
Great. Did you guys buy it? <laughs> okay, great. No, I like it. I like it. So I'm reminded also of we did the Havdala ceremony earlier, right before the session, and we talked about the line, I don't think I'm going to translate it very well, but it's uh, about the Jewish people having light and gladness. And what that reminded me of is there's like this really sweet thing that happens in a lot of the Star Wars movies where like they have their triumph and then they all hug it out. Like everyone comes and gives each other hugs and like whoops it up. And it's a stark uh, contrast to the empire people who kind of just like sit at their desks. They never hug anyone. Right. They never hug. They never whoop. They never like call over their radios just to make sure someone else is okay. And specifically, the celebration that I saw most recently, because I did watch the first three movies over again, was the very last scene of Return of the Jedi, where they're having a party with the Ewoks. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really sweet. Everyone's like singing. There's like this weird song, I guess, they invented for the party scene. You might know more about that. Yeah, something like that, right? And Luke goes off to the side, and he like, talks with the ghost of Anakin, the ghost of Ben Kenobi, and the ghost of Yoda. They're all smiling at him. He smiles back, and then like Leia pulls him back into the party. And to me, I was searching throughout the movies for Jewish moments, and that really seemed like a Jewish moment to me. They wanted to kill us. We survived. Let's party. Let's party with the Ewoks. Let's right. party with the Ewoks, right? Yeah. But at the same time, like, there's very much a focus on family, like Luke and Leia are hugging, and um, there's also a focus on our ancestors and people who have come before us. So what do you see as the parallel between the sense of community that we find in Judaism and the sense of community that Star Wars represents? Right. So there's there's a lot of different kind of micro-communities in Star Wars, if you want to get, you know granular about it. I think that um, one of the, when I was preparing for this, like one of the, the areas that I thought about was this area of community, of kahila, and of gathering, and of people who are aligned for a cause. So, you know, we can go and parse all of the different movies uh, for the different, you know, we've got the, the, the empire, and then we've got the uh, we've got the rebellion, right? Those are the very clear-cut kinds of things. Even in the political mishmash that is the the prequel movies, where everything is about trade agreements, and I fell asleep through half of it because um, I didn't understand what was going on. You have like the Senate is divided, so you have like you know kind of governmental dissent, and you also have the different communities on the planets and their own separate ecosystems of how they behave. Some of them are more mercenary, some of them are more peace-loving, and I, so I think that there's a lot, there's a, literally a whole galaxy full of communities and ecosystems that the Star Wars universe draws from. But one of the things that's really been the most interesting to me is community that forms around the films. And so if anybody here has ever been to a Comic-Con, or has, knows what a Comic-Con is, um, you can know what I'm talking about. But the idea of feeling such a kinship with a world created by a filmmaker that you dress like them, you know, maybe not just at Purim and Halloween, you know, like you have your own costume that depicts your favorite character. There's also like the idea that that fandom can be either nurturing or toxic. 
Um, and one of the things that happened over the last couple of years is that there's been great examples of both. There was a huge toxic fan uprising against against Rose Tico, who is the Asian-American member of the cast of the latest three movies, actually just in The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker. There was a huge Twitter outbreak of negativity in her direction. She left Twitter because of the negativity, even though she was very beloved by a lot of people in the fandom. And we don't know that it's 100% because of that outbreak of fan negativity that this happened, but it may not be consequence, but it is the fact that in Rise of Skywalker, she barely has any screen time. And so the question of like how much the fandom outside influenced the product that was being created is something that is like uniquely a, a problem of this age. When people can be such super fans and so supportive of a project, like there's another project called Looking for Leia, which is about women in the Star Wars fandom and gender nonconforming and people of color and how the entire the entirety of the Star Wars series, and especially the character of Princess and General Leia, is somebody that people have looked up to and has created this really lovely little niche supportive space in the fan space. So that's a great example of how it's working for good. The toxic fandom against Rose Tico is, is an example of how community goes bad. And I think that you know people who are also like taking these ideas and the characters from the movies and kind of going out into the world and doing good is a, is a particular point of inspiration. For instance, there's something called the 501st Legion. Does anybody know what that is? No? Oh, one person, great. So um, that person will correct me if I'm wrong, but I won't be wrong because it's from the website, is that it's an all-volunteer organization formed for, for the express purpose of bringing together costume enthusiasts under a collective identity with which to operate, the Legion seeks to promote interest in Star Wars through the building and wearing of quality costumes and to facilitate the use of these costumes for Star Wars related events as well as contributions to the local community through costumed charity and volunteer work. So there's an organization in Los Angeles called Worthy of Love that does birthday parties for homeless kids. And one time the 501st Legion came and they entertained the kids. And the pictures are really awesome. Like it's just, you know, this franchise has captured the imaginations of generations of people and it kind of touches the kid inside all of us and to be able to use that power to bring happiness to people is really marvelous. Okay, so this is somewhat related to my next question. I know that you've thought about the concept of nerd. Is that the a good phrase or geek? I'm not sure what the best way to refer it to. Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So um, definitely Star Wars is like a beacon for a certain kind of nerd. But when I was thinking about the connection between Star Wars and Judaism, I was thinking back to the Parsha class that I often go to, where I encounter like Torah nerds, like we'll be reading a passage and they'll just like come out with this like, arcane midrash, like, did you know that Shimon was married to Dina? And I was like, no, I never heard that. And they, like, have sort of this catalog of details that have come through different midrashim commentators. So have you thought about, like, the connection between, like, a Jewish, maybe detail-oriented or enthusiastic, invested in a storyline, like, our history in that mindset and um, the 
specific mindset of the Star Wars nerd. The distinction between nerd and geek is, is kind of like less interesting to me because I just want everybody to identify as however they want to identify, whatever they're comfortable with, and not to be persecuted for it. That's just kind of my bottom line on things. Um, I will tell you that when I was in high school, if anyone had called me a nerd about anything, I would have like run away crying um, just because that was what in Yeshiva Day School was bullying. <laughs> it was like calling somebody a nerd. Geek kind of made it cool, like pop culture, kind of like, oh, it's just something that you're really super interested in. So like, I will, I guess for this, use geek and nerd, you know, nerd out, geek out, kind of like interchangeably, just because they, they don't necessarily mean that much of a difference for me. But I will say that like, I think, you know, I, I, I love those people who are like, did you know so-and-so is married to so-and-so? Or like, did you know that this, this uh, character actually has a backstory with this character that came out in the animated show that I saw but you didn't see, you know, or that there's a lot of books also in that in the Star Wars universe. Are we supposed to say galaxy? I think so. But like in the Star Wars galaxy, there are a lot of stories and we don't know all the stories. And some of those stories are still being told because they're still being discovered in the case of fiction written. But you know, there's all kinds of voices that are not heard. And I'm always very interested in hearing the voices of people who are not heard. So what we're talking about Judaic texts, you know, the first level is, is women, um, where there are a lot of Judaic texts where women are either minimal or absent. And so that, to me, was always a reason, like I always wanted to hear the stories that weren't being told. The analog here is that when there's, there's all of these stories everywhere, like every character that's on screen, even if they're on screen for like three seconds, like I want to know more about what their world is like and how they got to be where they are, right? So there's a, a terrific uh, kind of anthology of Star Wars stories that are these kind of untold stories called um, From a Certain Point of View. And I don't know if anybody here knows that book. I'm seeing a nod somewhere also. That particular anthology is the stories of some of these minor characters. So like you question like, how did an engineer get to be on the Death Star, right? Or what's the, the Jawa who like, took uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 and sold them to Luke Skywalker. Like, what was his day like that day? You know, or does he dream about getting out of that giant sand crawler and going somewhere else? You know, like, I think, you know, those, those stories are, are interesting to me. And that's one of the reasons that I was kind of very interested in the idea of prequels. Because, you know, the, who could resist knowing how Darth Vader became Darth Vader? I mean, who doesn't want to see that story? And then the question became, who would want to see that story again? Um, but, you know, it's, it was like a remarkable disappointment. But I, I love a good origin story. And that was not a good origin story, but it was an origin story. And even bad origin stories kind of help you understand how people got to be who they are. And that's, that's one of the points of interest for me. Cool. Um, so you said the book is called A Certain Point of View, right? It's, I think it's called From a Certain Point of View. From a Certain Point and, of View. And um, it's taken from the part in Star Wars where uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi explains to Luke Skywalker uh, maybe it's in Return of the Jedi. I think it's his ghost actually ends up explaining to him. What he told you about your father was true from a certain point of view. Right, right. So that's the point, is that like, you know, everything is about perspective, right? Where are you starting and where are you ending up? And all the people you're encountering around, along the way who can change your perspective on things. Right. That's, yeah. I have this little notebook. And what I did, I just want to like take a moment. What I did is I like wrote, quotes that appealed to me while I was watching the movie. 
So I think the quote that followed that was, um, Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. And that quote in the context of Star Wars kind of blew me away because I think a lot of how I took Star Wars in was as a very like, you know, dark side, light side, like good and evil. Like Han's like sort of on the border there. We don't know if he's evil or good, but it, he ends up being redeemed. But it, it was just so cool to me to see this line in there that opened it up to a more complex and nuanced way of seeing the world. And that leads me to another question I had is one of my first questions when approaching this interview was like, well, Judaism is a religion and there's a religion in Star Wars. It's, what do you call it, Jedi? Or is there a name of that religion? Well, in the talks that I've been doing around this subject, I've been calling it Jediism just because I feel like it, it feels right. Right, right. So I was trying to think, is there a similarity between the two religions? And at the outset, I didn't think there was hardly any similarity because my memory of the films is like, it's sort of a very Buddhist type of way of looking at the world and Judaism is like very complex and conflicted and rule-based and I didn't find a lot of similarities between the two religions. As I went back and watched it, I saw that there are actually full scenes devoted to talking about the ideas behind it, and there are more overlaps than I had remembered, but I wonder if that's something that you've thought about, like comparing the two religions. Yeah, it's, it's something I think a lot about, actually. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, you talk about the force, you know, the and this may be in your list of quotes also, but when Ben Kenobi explains what the force is. He says it's an energy field creating by all living things and that it surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together, right? And that creates a sense of relationship and a sense of interconnectedness and responsibility. And for me, that always kind of became kol Yisrael arivim zelazet. Like everybody is responsible for each other. In that particular slogan, kol Yisrael, Israel is responsible for each other. But if you know we're all really bound together and a part of the same fabric, then we're all responsible for each other. And so, like, even if you don't believe that there's one all mystical force controlling every move, that you know, you can still say, "May the force be with you," because it's the it's it's the thought behind it that kind of counts. And so, I think that. It, it seems like there's varying kinds of beliefs in the Star Wars galaxy. Han Solo particularly calls it a hokey religion. You know, he says doesn't think it's it's relevant to him. But by the end, he's saying, may the force be with you, because he acknowledges that it's an important belief system, even if it's not necessarily important to him. And also, I've been thinking about, like, the Jedi Council as, like, the Sanhedrin and the Jedi Temple as kind of like the, the Holy Temple, like the Beit HaMikdash, maybe. There's a lot of talk about what's sacred and sacred texts and what your relationship is to those texts. There are a lot of conversations about who is, you know, not who gets smicha, but kind of like who becomes a Jedi? Like, how do you become a Jedi? Is it because you have, you know, silly little midichlorians in your blood in a high, in a high concentration and that way you're genetically uh, encoded to be a wielder of the force? 
or is it like, you know, anybody can tap into the energy of the universe and become important to the story and become a force for change? And, you know, how you look at all of those different things, again, it varies greatly depending on your point of view. So I think, you know, all of those things are things I think about. And I also try to figure out, like, how I would react if our, if our spiritual leaders also were our political and military leaders, because that's really what the Jedi are. They're both a religion and they're a fighting order and they're generals and they're, they're like leading people into battle and they're negotiating trade deals and, you know, doing all of those things well. I mean, very unlikely. And as we see in the, the movies, they don't all do everything well. So I think that's obviously a, a real difference. Like we don't want like necessarily our rabbis like going to negotiate a trade deal. Like it's not, it's not an area of strength. And, you know, the Jedi just basically kind of spreading the word of whatever's going on, you know, just kind of spreading God's word or word of the force or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, I think that the amorphous God is everywhere thing is something that feels like relatable, even if it's not necessarily a deeply held belief of each one of us individually. Um, and I think that that's also like by intention. There's a great interview that George Lucas did with Bill Moyers in like 1999. It's available online, both as video and transcript. If you're interested in this stuff, you should check it out. Bill Moyers talks to George Lucas about like what he was planning and why, why this seems so resonant to people of different faiths. Because, you know, it's obviously based a lot on the hero mythology of, of Joseph Campbell, who George Lucas counted as a mentor. But he said that when he was 10 years old, he asked his mother, if there's only one God, why are there so many religions? And he says that over the years, he's been pondering that ever since. And he said, it would seem to me that the conclusion I've come to is that all the religions are true. They just see a different part of the elephant. And so this also kind of like in some ways is the value of revisiting a good and challenging text like we do every year as we restart the Torah, tell the same stories over and over again, have the same holidays with the same stories. Why do we do that is because those stories are technically the same. Our perception of them is different because we've spent a whole year since then. But we may be at our core the same, but we have different perspectives. Again, it kind of comes to the point of view. And in this interview, George Lucas says, when the film came out, almost every single religion took Star Wars and used it as an example of their religion and were able to relate it to young people and saying, and relating the story specifically to the Bible and to the Quran and to the Torah and other things. And he says, so it's like, you know, if it's a tool that can be used to make old stories new and relate to younger people, that's what the whole point was. So like, you know, he had in mind that it should be both relatable for everyone and specific to no one, which is in some ways, you know, it's kind of in some ways the opposite of, of advice that's given now when people are making specifically ethnically specific or situationally specific stories. You think about my big fat Greek wedding, right? It was ethnically specific, but it didn't mean that only Greek people would relate to it. And if it had been just my wedding or my big fat wedding, it loses the ethnic specificity and therefore is kind of generally relatable, but not really special and memorable. So it's interesting here that it was like deliberately theologically vague to be inclusive and that worked. Okay, I've actually had this question for a long time, so I'm excited that I get to be opposite like a Star Wars no, expert. Not expert, <laughs> but a person, fan. A person with a, a lot of Star Wars opinions. Yeah. Um, that I can ask this of. So a few years ago, there was like an 
ad campaign. And I should have done my research and like so I could remember exactly what product it was advertising, but I want to say like makeup or something. It was around when one of the movies was released. Was the light side, dark side makeup? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was a Revlon campaign. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was bad. It was not it was not something I enjoyed seeing that. I understand that that Star Wars and Disney have to license everything to within an inch of its life to make the most money possible. It, they were both like insane makeup jobs on these women and like, are you the light side? Are you the dark side? And it was just like, you know, like shinier makeup or darker makeup. And it was all very dramatic. And I didn't understand who they were marketing to. That's, that's really all I have to say about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm so glad that you remembered this specific campaign. The question that it triggered in me wasn't just like, why do they have to like market to the nth degree? It was, why do people want to identify themselves with the dark side? And along with that went my observation that I think probably more than half of the merchandise, again, back to merchandising, merchandise that is sold, like I recently saw like a baking mat, a rolling pin, like I've seen like ice cube trays, they're usually dark side imagery, like the Death Star, Darth Vader's helmet, the stormtrooper helmets. And my question is like, why do you want to wear a t-shirt of someone who destroyed an entire planet? Like, what? Right. how does that appeal to people? Right. Well, um, I'll address your the first part of that first before we get to before we get to why people like Darth Vader and identify with the dark side. You know the the merch question is interesting. People the people who make the merch and dice merchandise merch uh, for short in case anybody's not familiar those people to make what they'll think will sell and they also have ideas based on the shape of the actual thing. So for instance, if anybody remembers back in the 70s, there was like a, a carrying case for your, um, for your uh, action figures that I think was Darth Vader's head, right? Um, so like, because it's, it's, it's big, you can fit a lot of things on the shelves, like it's, it's practical. I actually own a number of those items that you mentioned, um, not baking mats, but I do, have, I do have like a number of like plugs for the wall, like with USB ports. I have one that's the Death Star, I have one with BB-8. I have a set of R2-D2 measuring cups that all fit into an R2-D2. And then you take it, the top is like the third of the cup measure and then the little teaspoons are in the arms. It's really clever and like, um, so I love that. There I have another R2-D2 that's like uh, the bottom is like, you unscrew the bottom and there's like screws in there and it becomes a screwdriver. I mean, it's like, it's amazing. If you just look for what R2-D2 has become, it's really quite, a, quite incredible and BB-8 as well. You know, any droid. C-3PO is a humanoid kind of droid, so like there's not much to do with him that you wouldn't do with a, another a human form. So anyway, so I think that that's a, a little bit of a pragmatic issue. Um, and also the fact that they are counting on, at least before this new set of movies, probably most of the people buying, buying those toys or those things were, were boys and men. So there was more of a skewing of identifying with the dark side and with the like kind of like just, you know, the fighting and the war games and the um, spaceships and blowing things up and like 
while you know you can talk about how gender roles are changing and that's all great you know the fact is that a lot of these toys went to little boys and there's actually a great documentary called uh, the toys that made us that's on Netflix if anybody's seen it. they have a great episode about Star Wars action figures and how they were created and how they didn't come out in time and how people have to wait for them and it was really terrific little mini doc. But in terms of the identification with the dark side, you know, I, I always wonder about that too, like how your favorite character can be a dark side character. But if you talk about fantasy as a way to enact things that are kind of counter to your actual identity, um, it's one of the things that if you want to talk about Purim again, you could talk about, you know, not uh, Fohu, like just to turn it over and be the opposite. And so, like, if you're good in every other area of your life and you want to dress as, like, you know, as a stormtrooper, obviously the word stormtrooper, I have to say, the first time I heard, I'm like, stormtrooper, are we sure? And they're all white. Like, are we sure we like that? Um, it's not, not, saying, not saying Holocaust to anyone, because, like, that's really just, that's, that's kind of, like, a hard thing to watch. And the, the, the parallel is intentional, you know? Like, the way they've, and especially in the later movies, they really amp up the totalitarian, genocidal army kind of thing. But I think that, you know, it's a way to kind of safely be in a space where you can identify with something darker or more evil, but know that at the end of the day, you're taking off the costume. And, you know, I don't never really had an affinity for the stormtroopers. They all look, you know, they also all look the same. And until the most recent movies, we didn't even know if they were people or robots inside. Like, I was pretty sure they were robots for the first three movies. Mm. You know, I think that it's a, it's a safe space to play uh, for a lot of people. And also, you know, there's, it was before it was stormtroopers and Jedis, it's cops and robbers or um, cowboys and Indians. And like, there's always been kind of like, you know, for all the problematic racial challenges in those polarities, you know, there's always the good guys and the bad guys, the white hats and the black hats. And in the space of play, it's, it's safe. So one thing I like to do before interviewing someone is like talk to a lot of different people about the questions I'm gonna come up with to get different perspectives and help me come up with the questions. And one person that I talked to who had just seen the new movie um, remarked on the difference between the Empire and the rebel forces where the Empire, um, like half of them are faceless because they're stormtroopers wearing masks. They all kind of look the same. They don't talk that much. There's like a very monotonous, like non-diverse group of people working together. Whereas the rebel forces, you know, they have um, different aliens, different droids. The people look very different from each other. Um, so what she pointed out was there's really a comment about diversity and the value of diversity. Um, so I was wondering if you've thought about that. In some ways, it's less about diversity as an issue and more about, like, when you have a rebellion, sometimes you, you have people who are rebelling from a lot of different places. And so it's a band of scrappy rebels. And those people are going to come from wherever they come from. And I think that in some ways you asked me before about like the connection to, to Purim and to the Book of Esther. But the reality is that I've always kind of seen the rebels and the empire kind of in the context of Hanukkah. When you're talking about like literally one of the miracles of Hanukkah is that a small band of scrappy rebels, of course they have 
most of them happen to be related to each other in this particular case, but we're a smaller people than, than the galaxy, fighting against power. And so I think that that's the analog for me is like in terms of the Jedi and the, the rebels really more than the Jedi versus the Empire. Right, got it. So let's go to our questions from the audience. What do you think is similar and different in the motivation of a learned Star Wars superfan and the motivation of a Torah scholar? Ooh, well, sometimes like droids, we all have bad motivators, right? Is that too <laughs> micro? I like it. Um, so no, I think, well, I think, you know, everything depends on intention and point of view, right? So why is Luke leaving his planet of Tatooine? And why, is, why does Rey end up leaving her planet, right? And I was thinking about this the other day and how they're very different. Like Luke leaves because he's looking for adventure. He's curiosity about his father and, you know, he kind of knows that Ben Kenobi has spent some time with him. So he's looking for that kind of piece of himself. But, you know, there's nothing for him on, tatu on Tatooine. He always wanted to leave. Only once his poor aunt and uncle are burnt to a crisp, sorry, another spoiler from 1977, he, he says, there's nothing for me here now, and he leaves, right? He literally, like, he's always looked to the stars, and Yoda says to this to him again and again, you're always out there, you know, never, never where you are at the moment. Does this on his head with like a cane, he wraps on his head and be like, you're never, you're never like thinking about what you're supposed to be thinking about. And in some ways that's very connected to, you know, if you talk about Torah study, there are people who like really connect. And um, there's, an, there's an old poem where you talk about like a kid who's in the yeshiva. They describe him as a masmer takua, like a, like a sunken nail. That's how like attached he is to the study and to being in the Beit Midrash. And Luke is not that. Luke is like, get me out there. I want to be flying. And Ray is just like trying to make a go of it. And she's like, you know, she desperately wants to stay on her own planet because she thinks that's where her family is coming back to because that's where they left her. So like, she doesn't want to leave. And as soon as they try to draft her, she's like, no, 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 I got to go home. And, you know, only through additional adventures does she actually end up joining that band and then like figuring out what happened to her family eventually. But I think that the, the motivation of those two characters is also very different. And in some ways, I feel like Rey's like a more noble figure than, than Luke Skywalker. And, you know, that's sometimes disturbing to me because, you know, Luke was so iconic, but he was really always like, even to the end, he, you know, when he has this conversation in The Last Jedi with Yoda about the sacred Jedi texts, like, he's always like kind of reactive and he's not like thinking about the big picture. He gets very frustrated when somebody tries to tell him, just have patience and wait because, you know, we're part of this larger thing. And, you know, not everybody can have that kind of attitude. Not everybody can have the attitude of like, oh, I'm totally patient. I'm going to wait for the end of the story. But in terms of like what motivates someone to be a super fan oh, super or fan. to like engage in the story in the way that a super fan does versus what motivates that like sunken nail to just like go deeper into the Torah. Well, you know, I, I think I can only speak for, for myself as a reader of text of various kinds. My motivation is to, is to unpack the narrative and to find a character with whom I either deeply identify or deeply don't identify with, and then kind of follow them along and try to understand the choices that they made and why. And that's similar to what I was saying before about the minor characters. Like, I kind of feel like there's more than just one main story. There's more than just one point of view. So I think that that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, also like finding out like what, you know, relevance it has for me. 
and like, you know, how to know myself better through those narratives and how to know my community better through those narratives. And being a Star Wars super van, like the, the motivation is about the product itself and also about the community that it builds. And I think that that's, that's a similarity both with studying film texts and Torah texts as well. For sure. Okay, the next question is, can you connect Yoda to Judaism? Absolutely, and I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really didn't plant that here, but I do, I do have a lot to say about Yoda. And some of it kind of goes into some analysis that I've done about uh, the names in the Star Wars universe. So let's tackle Yoda first, and if we have time, we'll get to some of these other people. Many people in this room probably know that the word for knowledge is, is Yeda, Yodea, I know, which is phonetically very similar to the word Yoda. If you know something, you say Ani Yodea or Ani Yodat. So the fact that Yoda has all of the knowledge is super Hebraically appropriate. I have known a knowledge that George Lucas speaks Hebrew or decided this, um, but uh, you know, with all of these kind of uh, observations, it's like who knows about the intent, but the result is resonant, and so maybe don't even maybe it doesn't matter what the intent was if the result of the art resonates. The word Jedi also is similar, you know, Yodea, like it's kind of like in there also. And also the fact that like he speaks like in an inverted way that kind of reminds me of like an Eastern European rabbi whose first language is in English. Invert the sentence structure he did, you know, kind of things like that. So that's, that's one of the things I think about when it comes to Yoda. But the truth is that there's like a lot of other characters whose names have kind of biblical resonance to them or Hebraic resonance. I don't know if anybody knows in the new movies, Ray goes to find Luke on top of the mountain in this crazy like island area. Does anybody know what the island is called? It's called Achto, A-C-H-T-O. And what does Ray bring with her to the mountain is a message from Luke's Achot, Achoto, from her sister. So I thought that was really interesting and super obscure and I didn't expect anybody else to be on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> then there's like, there's Anakin, which is similar to Anakim, like the giants of the Torah that fell to earth and also uh, Anakin fell in a very a real sense as the young Skywalker and then became Darth Vader. Ben Kenobi, you know, for me, Kenobi sounds like Kenavi, like as a prophet. And the fact that he is not necessarily engaged in prophecy, but in an intense kind of empathy with the universe through the force. So if you could imagine having such deep empathy that like when you feel the pain of sorrow of other people across millions of miles, you know, that's, that's a remarkable kind of thing. And when Luke is trained and he sees his friends in trouble, Yoda says, it, it is the future you see. And so he indicates that Luke may have this prophecy. And the fact is that like, you know, Luke is from this rabbinic family, if you will, that had the power in him for a long time. And if he's been trained in the ways of the force, that maybe he can manipulate kind of that bond, that, that empathy bond, so that it not just goes across miles, but also across time and space. Thank you so much, Esther, for talking to me about your Jewish perspective on Star Wars. I feel like I learned a lot. And thank you all for being the audience and having patience and submitting your wonderful questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you, guys.
This Seattle Limudcast was recorded at the Limud Seattle 2020 Festival in Bellevue, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Lubicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Esther Kastanowicz. Check out her writings and her podcast, The Bagel Report, for the Jewish Journal at jewishjournal.com. Also read more of her articles at J, the Jewish News of Northern California, jweekly.com.